Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Today we're talking about new overtime rules that President Obama unveiled last month. The rules mean salaried employees making less than $47,476 a year will earn time and a half for working overtime. It's twice the old threshold. Businesses in Indiana and nationwide now have until December to figure out how to adapt to the changes. Joining us to discuss the new rules is Chris Schrader. He's a lecturer at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, and Kenneth Dauschmidt from the Maurer School of Law. Thank you both for being here. And Bob Salzberg is out of town, so Joe Wren from Indiana News Desk is joining me to co-host. Hello, Joe. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having Thank me. You. And you can join the conversation as well. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or call into the program at 812-855-0811. And We'll try to get answers to your questions. If we can just start off, Chris and Ken, we'll just ask both of you if you can explain, maybe Ken, start with you, how these rules are different than what's currently on the books. Okay. Well, these are rules under the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it's a federal law that was passed back in the 1930s as part of the New Deal. And as everybody knows, um, the Fair Labor Standards Act requires a certain minimum wage, $7.25 an hour. And if employees work over 40 hours a week, they have to be paid time and a half. And that's basically what it requires. Now, there's a lot of exemptions to the Fair Labor Standards Act. And this rule uh, deals with one of them. And th- that exemption specifically is the executive, administrative, and professional uh, employees exemption. And the, the thought in exempting them was that these would be powerful employees who would have some bargaining power on their own and didn't need to be protected by the minimum wage law if they were executive, truly executive, administrative, and professional. And originally, and that's basically all the statute says is that they are to be exempted. But in trying to interpret how to, uh, how to um, apply that, the Department of Labor used to look at what kind of work they do, and they still do. Uh, but they used to look only at what kind of work they do and make sure that they did a sufficient amount of executive, administrative, or professional work, and then they were exempted. But in 1975, uh, they decided that this resulted in too much litigation, and they put in the first salary requirement, which said that uh, they started the salary basis test, which means uh, you had to be paid by a salary, and you had to make at least $13,000 a year back in 1975. And then they would, they would still look at what you did, but if you were below that, it was kind of presumed that you weren't powerful enough to protect yourself, and so therefore you still should be under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that's when this rule started, and that's been tested by the courts and upheld, and that's been upheld as a reasonable interpretation of the law. Now, in 2004, the Bush administration, now that that standard, 13,000, sat there for 29 years and wasn't updated. And it was updated in 2004 by the Bush administration, and they updated it to 23,660, which is the current rule. And that uh, was uh, an increase in nominal dollars, but it was actually a significant decrease in in inflation-adjusted dollars. And what this new rule does, uh, there are some other things in addition to it, but but basically, it increases that number from the 23660 that the Bush administration set to $47,476, and that begins December 1st. So basically, uh, if, you, if you want to be sure that – well, if you want to have the uh, – if an employer wants you to have the, the uh, benefit of the exemption or wants to have the benefit of the exemption for an executive, administrative, or professional employee from the overtime requirements, they have to pay you at least – $47,476, and you have to do executive, administrative, and professional work, and there still is a test as to whether you do that kind of work. And if you look at that in real dollar terms, the 1975 figure of 13000 if you inflated that to 
2015 dollars, that would be about $58,000. And in the Bush administration, if you inflated that to, actually, I'm sorry, it's $2016 I'm inflating them to, that comes out to about $30,000. So they went from 58 to 30, and now we're going up to 47, 4, 76. So it, it definitely is a higher threshold than what the Bush administration said, certainly in both in nominal terms and in real terms. But it's actually a lower figure in real terms than the original $1975 amount. Well, Chris, maybe you can speak to these executive positions. Um, what, I mean, who does that encompass? Sure. Well, the, <clears throat> the executive position typically requires to what we commonly today still regard as executives, right? There's a managerial uh, de- uh, designation. You easiest way to accomplish that is supervise two or more people. That usually satisfies that, that exemption. But where the real growth has been is in the administrative <coughs> exemption. And this was the change made to kind of recognize what was happening in the 90s. And so you heard Ken's point that <clears throat> you looked at hourly wage and the assumption that most workers would make that and that certain workers would be power enough to do it. Well, you roll in through the 90s to today, and the average worker today has far more authority, discretion for action, uh, ability to prioritize, ability to choose than a worker 1932 could have ever dreamed of, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's really where people went into that administrative exemption. And the workplace now reflects that, right? So we give people smartphones, we give them computers, and we basically say, these are the objectives, go get them, Tiger, and come and see me if you need something, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's how you mm-hmm. do it. And, um, it and, and so consequently, a lot of the po- workforce population moved into the exempt status. And that's part of what triggered the DOL's look because you, you kind of paid attention to ratios. This was the point Ken was making about positions of power. And so as those ratios began to climb to exempt, the Department of Labor's point of view as well, fewer people have protection. So. May I ask just about that number, your initial reaction when this came out, both of you professionals in this area, the 47,460, what, what, what was your reaction? Um, I, I was surprised it was lower than anticipated, which was the 50 number. That was the original proposed rule was 50. Um, but either way, it's uh, very challenging because it's a universal rule and um, it, is, it is set totally irrespective of what the business does uh, in its marketplace, how much money it makes, what its profit margins are, whether it's for-profit, not-for-profit, anything else. It's, mm-hmm. it's just that flat number. So to, to give you an idea of potential impact in Indiana, median household income in Indiana is only a couple grand above this. To put that in perspective. For a household. For a household income. Right? So if you look at order of magnitude in Indiana, you can kind of get a grip of that. In Mississippi, it's 10000 over the annual household income. So Mississippi has to comply just as Indiana does, but in a far different economic environment. See, the, I actually, I mean, I think, I think uh, the theory on this is good. I mean, when I, uh, as I said, as, as Chris alluded to, I think I was a little surprised that they lowered it. They did that as a concession to business. They had originally set the dollar figure amount at 40% uh, of what uh, at the 40th percentile for what uh, salary earners make nationwide. So in other words, you take all the salary earners and where 40% of those salary earners are below and 60% are above, that's what the figure was going to be. And that's where the $50,000 figure came. They, they heard Chris, Chris's complaint a little bit about, well, at least Mississippi. What they've done is they've made the rule, it's going to be the 40th percentile for the lowest, the lowest region in the country. And right now the South is the lowest region and always has been in terms mm-hmm. of salary and probably always will be. And 
and uh, um, and so if you take the 40th percentile there, that's where they get the 47,476. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically they're saying if you're an executive that's going to be exempt from the minimum wage and maximum hours over uh, requirements, the time and a half requirement, you have to make at least what the 40th percentile is for salary earners in the South. Uh, uh, and uh, that's the figure. That, and actually, one good thing about this, I mean, one reason I think why businesses are – uh, uh, you know, be drawing back on this is because it's been left uh, unattended for so long and we're catching up very quickly. And one good thing I think about this rule is they are going to look at this and reevaluate this number every three years. So we're not going to let it go for 29 years like we did between 1975 and 2004, or we're not going to let it go for another 12 years like we did between 2004 and 2016. We're going to reevaluate it every every three years, and the number will go up every three years, assuming that salaries go up, and the businesses will have to adjust, but it'll be much less of an adjustment. It'll be fewer workers that are involved. There'll be smaller smaller adjustments. Hopefully, their wages will keep up. Maybe they won't have to make any changes at all. And we should talk a little bit about how there are ways, actually, to comply with this without without increasing wages at Absolutely. all. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, employers basically... Uh, the, the purpose of the Fair Labor Standards Act is to try to put more money in people's pockets and to try to give employers incentive to spread work uh, by putting this premium on overtime. And I think this rule will do some of that. But you are allowed to still pay salary workers, uh, and what you do is you specify what their base amount is. And, and then so you could have a salary, and I did some calculations before this. If you, uh, you could have a legal salary um, – where a, a, work, a person worked regularly 50 hours a week and got paid the minimum wage, seven twenty-five, and they would only make $22,620 a year. And you would meet the requirements. You wouldn't meet this rule, but you wouldn't have to meet this rule. You would just say, you're a salaried employee. We expect you to work 50 hours a week. Your wage is seven twenty-five, and you get paid $10, or you get paid for 10 hours of overtime every week. And you'd actually be paying only $22,620. And a business could do that if they wanted to. They have to be a little more honest with their employees about what they're making, and executive, administrative, and professional employees who only make the minimum wage might find that a little objectionable. It's a little easier to sneak it in if you say, well, you're a salaried professional. We don't know how many hours you make. And also, if you did that, if you worked them more than 50 hours a week, you would have to pay them time and a half over Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Now, if you go up to to, uh, 60 60 hours uh, at 725, you would have to pay them at least $30,000 in order to work 30,160 in order to work them, uh, 60 hours on average. And if you, if they worked 61, you would have to pay them time and a half for that. But you could, you could, if you wanted to, you could just go through your administrative and executive people and say, your base rate is 725 and we expect you to work 50 hours a week or we expect you to work 60 hours a week and and you wouldn't be anywhere near the 47,000. Um, I think one reason why employers might not want to do that is they do want these jobs to have a little cachet. I'll, I'll tell you, the, the peop, real people this is aimed at, and I'm sorry to tell you this up, we should get, Chris works with the employers much more and knows. I know there are practical problems in making this work, and he'll tell us much more about that. But what this is really aimed at is the mid-level managers. And what's happened is that uh, a lot of, especially in retail, they will have this model where the mid-level managers really don't have much executive control. They can't hire and fire. All they do is they schedule the hourly employees. And they are given a certain budget for hourly employees to unload trucks and stock shelves. And if they can't make uh, the, get the work done in that time, they make up the hours themselves. The mid-level managers happen. And the problem with this, of course, is it gives the business incentive to say, to not give them enough not to give them enough budget, to give them a budget for only a certain number of hourly employees. And then this mid-level manager who gets a a slightly better title and gets a a salary uh, instead 
ends up working all these hours, stocking shelves and unloading trucks. And the purpose of this is to say, hire another hourly employee to do some of that time so that they so that they can get home and see mm-hmm. their, their family and so that they really are an administrative or an executive person who, you know, the the title really is worthy of the of the job or the job is really worthy of the title. And that now and that and that's the easy case. There's lots of harder cases that Chris will probably tell you about. Yeah, Chris, that's my next question, I guess, would be what is that reaction from companies and what are you hearing from them? Sure. Well, a lot of them are in shock. Um, My clients aren't because I've been working with them for over a year on this. But for a lot of folks who don't pay attention to rulemaking, um, unless you are really tied into a lawyer and you're used to getting updates or you're a member, you're an HR pro and you're a member of SHRM or local chapter or something like that, you, you get a constant feed on this. But if you're outside of that network, especially if you're a small employer with no real attorney relationship and no HR professional, you just heard about this in the paper. Right. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, that's the majority of employers in the United States, right? Where mm-hmm. Indiana's no different than any other state. The vast number of employers in the state are small employers with about eight to ten employees. I mean that's that's Indiana. And so they were kind of surprised. And so they're they're really in the backhand court to a certain extent trying to deal with this by December. But I think the way to think about this is um you, you look at at total compensation, I mean, not just the salary, but everything else that goes into having an employee there. So generally speaking, employers and I'm talking here mid-sized ones with 50, 100 plus employees, something like that. They all usually have about 42% of the total cost of employees sitting in benefits, you know, and things like that. So when you're looking at it from a strategic standpoint, that's the whole dollar amount for an employee. So in essence, what this rule change does is kind of push on one end of the balloon. So it, it, it drives another piece of it up, but you're not going to drive your overall costs up because of that. So businesses are going to basically solve this within the amount of money they're spending. That's one of the reasons why I think there, there will be marginal gains, right? There's no doubt in my mind there will be marginal gains. Uh, with all of my clients, and I think this is likely to happen across the country, if you're sitting at 46000 or 45500 a year, you're probably just going to get pushed over the line because it just isn't worth the hassle. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, CEOs I work with, when we were talking about the communication plan for employees. He said, I feel like tell them they just won the lottery because it wasn't like we made any more money or got any more customers. I'm just complying with the rule change. And maybe they get a pay increase next year. Maybe they don't. You know, you sort that kind of thing out. But where the rub is is that group of employees, say, between 38,000, because these are usually managers, 38,000 and up to 45, where you just can't afford to push, right? Mm-hmm. I read an article this morning, an uh, uh, executive of YMCA in Texas had, had written a piece that a- appeared in Not-for-Profit News, and she said, just to comply with this act would cost us $400,000, and I don't have a mechanism to push that on. I mean, that's against our mission, you know, to drive costs up exactly that high. So all we can do is cut services because I can't not pay the employees this amount of money. Uh, so if you're, if you're in a line of business where your profit margins are robust or your products have elasticity, right, pricing in the market, you, you, you have more resources to be able to maneuver this. But if you're a not-for-profit grant-related, you're small government, you're small employer, uh, you're the average employer in Indiana with about a 2.3% profit margin, right? You you just don't have the wherewithal. If there's no money, there's no money, right? Mm-hmm. So then you just have to figure out how to comply. And and, and Ken alluded to uh, a way that he's absolutely correct. It's, it's totally legal. 
And it's a solution I'm actually working out with with no star employers because the point he brought up is very salient. When you're a salaried worker, you really don't you can't have a, a an idea in your head of really what your hourly rate is, right? You don't know. That's why when you talk to people and you ask them how much they make, an hourly worker says X amount an hour, and a salaried worker mm-hmm. tells you how much you make a year, right? That's mm-hmm. how you think about it. And so Ken's right. This drives transparency in where there wasn't much before. But what the solutions I'm working on for most of my clients is the communication we've carried out to employees is, look, we're going to comply. We have to work through it. Some of you are going to have to start reporting your hours to us because you don't know and we don't know. (laughs) We've never kept track of this before. So we're going to figure it out. We have two principles here. We're not going to cut your pay and we're not going to drive our costs up. We're going to find a solution within that, but it it will comply, but nothing's going to move. And there are indeed ways to do that. So if you're a not-for-profit or something, that that could be an option. You might have to rewrite a bunch of job descriptions. Well, they didn't change the duties tests, really. Well, but I mean, if if you have somebody who is salary and all of a sudden you're moving them to hourly and saying this is how many hours. Well, they might have to keep track of their hours, but you don't have to change their duties. And... You know, a lot of businesses have hourly employees, and so they already have mechanisms for keeping track of hours. So they just have to put different employees in those in those mechanisms. And I do think that there would be a marginal improvement there too. I mean, I I think Chris is right. There's going to be a, there's a lot of ways for businesses to to respond to this. It's not like everybody's going to get paid, you know, uh, forty seven thousand dollars a year. Or, and they, there's a lot of marginal ways to. I do think hiring additional workers to help out because I, I think once. They have to start counting these hours. Businesses are going to become sensitive to, oh, you don't just work 50 hours a week. You actually work 60 hours a week, and we have to pay you 10 hours of overtime. You know what? We're hiring another hourly employee to help you out, so you don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's part of the intent of the law is to get people more time with their family and to spread work around rather than having a few middle-level managers unload all the trucks late at night by themselves. Yeah, I, I concur. The, the real impact here is not going to be the financial one for most uh, again, getting back to not-for-profits, governments, schools, they're, they're lashed into certain commitments and they don't have elasticity in pricing. So let, let's just set them off the side because that's a, a tough nut to crack. But if you look at the rest of the private sector, I feel the real impact is going to be on the nature of work itself, organizational design, who does what and at what time and things like that. I, I, I absolutely concur with Ken that I think when this sorts itself out, probably another year, you're going to see uh, probably another, I would not be surprised at all to see part-time hiring right now. That's um, 10 times the growth rate of full-time jobs plus. I could easily see that going up to 12 because that's how I think businesses are going to respond and probably keep it at the magic 29-hour mark so that um, you don't have to offer health benefits. There are, as we mentioned a little bit too, there are other exemptions to all this. So teachers is one of them. They're completely exempted. It doesn't matter that yeah, that was new less. to me. I didn't realize that. Actually, nonprofits too. Charitable nonprofits are completely exempted from the Fair Labor Standards Act. So it's only non-charitable uh, uh, non-for-profits. And uh, unless if you're a charitable non-for-profit, if you're competing with a private firm, then you can be covered. Or if you have like a card shop or something like that, that would compete with private yeah. firms. But churches are not going to be covered by this. Right. Um, and and the the non-charitable nonprofits run everything from Stonebelt out here in Bloomington. To the NFL, remember they're a nonprofit too. Mm-hmm. So not, some nonprofits have a lot of a lot of potential for for spending money on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not Red not, Cross. It's, it's it's a very it's a very mixed bag when you start talking about the non charitable nonprofits. Mm-hmm. 
Now, hospitals, a lot of hospitals are not for profit. Yeah. 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 This week on Noon Edition, talking about the new overtime rules, you can call in with your questions, 812-855-0811, or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Chris, you mentioned ACA and the magic number of 29, and that, to me, is an example of how when that was passed, employee, employers found a way that they wouldn't have to pay benefits for everything. So I'm wondering, is there going to be that sort of the sort of unintended consequences? Because in that case, we saw you know part-time workers got well, less I, hours. Yeah, I, I certainly think they're unintended. I don't consider them entirely unpredictable. Um, I I said that for you, Joe. You had me on the program, and I mm-hmm. called that two years before it happened. Um, the the one thing I think to remember is that, uh, and this is where the, I think one of the most profound change in the law, I believe, in terms of cost, is um, uh, putting it on the permanent escalator. So every three years, it's going to go up. So if you just took the current math and rolled it forward in 2020, that probably goes up to around 51000 mm-hmm. somewhere in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. 50, 51000 So if you're an employer, the strategic implications of this are you know that you're you know what your labor costs are now fixed and on a permanent escalator. Regardless of anything else that goes on in your business, you know your labor costs are going to go up and you can't stop them easily. If you look at it from the other end and the push to drive the minimum wage up, you know, a lot of pushes on 15 there, you're looking at a situation in which they have less control over the most costly element of operating their enterprise. Human capital is always the most costly. So you're going to have to rethink your business model. How much labor do you need? Where does technology figure into this, right? And how would you introduce that in, especially artificial intelligence that I think is going to make significant inroads into uh, white-collar uh, jobs in the next couple of years? Uh, all this becomes now math. You can, you can run an Excel spreadsheet on this from a business standpoint. And that's going – we'll see profound change, I believe, in the next three years because nobody is going to roll into 2020 not prepared for 51000 Can companies offer anything different other than overtime pay like compensation, uh, time off, and things like that too? State uh, employers can offer comp time. And actually, when I worked at the state of Minnesota, I used to get comp time. But I don't believe that's available for private. No, it's not. Oh, it's, okay. It's, it's actually – yeah, totally forbidden. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So they're going to have to clock in, and then anything over 40 has to get reimbursed at time and a half. You well, can't say well, you unless, unless they have a specified salary. You can take an employee and say, mm-hmm. you're paid a salary of X amount for 50 hours a week. And that, that X amount would have to be at least um, greater than the minimum wage for the first 40 and time and a half for the extra 10. And then if they work above 50, that's where you pay them. You have to pay them time and a half. So you would have to keep track of their hours to know when they go above 50. Right. And this is why the solutions vary greatly depending upon how predictable the work is. When the work is predictable and you know somebody works an hour or two overtime one way or the other, different days of the week, but one way or the other, this salary non-exempt payment method fits perfectly. And it doesn't disrupt that worker's life and it doesn't disrupt the business and you just move on. Where it becomes very difficult to manage is if there's wide variation from week to week of hours worked. Very difficult to plot that out in a method other than than hours. And uh, you're talking about a lot of people, and this is where I think some of the psychological concerns come in from a worker standpoint. Whether it was intended or not and whether it's actually true or not, I can tell you in the United States for sure um, – 
most people view moving from an hourly job to a salary job, an exempt role, and being unshackled from the clock and have all the flexibility that comes with that, right? Mm-hmm. Exempt worker, uh, exempt worker and hourly worker both come into the office and, and uh, uh, both their kids are in the same kindergarten class and either kid brought home the piece of paper that said there was a play at three o'clock that they're in. So the, the exempt worker says their boss, it doesn't even ask permission, just sends an email, just found out <laughs> my daughter's play is at three. I'm, I'm popping out, I'll be back you know, in an hour. And, and maybe they read that email, maybe they don't, right? That's it. The hourly worker has to say, I need to take this time. The supervisor says, okay, well, let's see if you have the time. Did you request the time in a timeliness fashion that we can provide this? And so there's whole, this whole kabuki you go through as an hourly worker that you never have as, as an exempt worker. And so if you get back into that world, psychologically, it's going to feel like you, you fell back. And I really think this is going to be the large issue in most organizations. How do you deal with people's perceptions of, of loss of value, of loss of progress, right? That, that's not intended within the law, but I can guarantee you that dynamic is going to be a significant one at, at places I, of employment. I, empirically, though, I wonder, because if they really are administrative, executive, administrative, or professional, they're not checking with their foreman as to whether they can get time off work in the middle of the day. And I think the much bigger problem. No, for, I agree. For, for, I've seen yeah, if they become hourly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but 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 well, even if they even if they have to keep track of their hours, I don't think they're going to be checking with the foreman. And the much bigger problem for this class of employees is working sixty or seventy hours a week and not getting home. And so I actually think that some of these, uh, especially the mid-level managers, are going to be kind of relieved that it actually costs the employer something to work them that long and that there'll be some pressure on the business to say, you know what, you can't be working uh, 20 hours of overtime a week. Much more ground to cover. Unfortunately, we do have to take a, a quick break. But as a reminder, you're listening to Noon Edition today. We're talking about the new overtime rules. The phone number to call in with your question, 812-855-0811. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Sarah Whitmire with co-host Joe Wren. Today we're talking about the new overtime rules. Our guests are Chris Schrader. He's a lecturer at SPIA at Indiana University. And Ken Dalschmidt, a professor at the Maurer School of Law at Indiana University. We have a caller on the line. Victor is from Spencer. And Victor has a question about truck drivers. Go ahead, Victor. Hi. Yeah, I wanted to point out that uh, right from the beginning of the fair wage standard laws in the 1930s, uh, interstate transportation 
workers have been left out. Mm -hmm. And one of the results of that is that you have uh, uh, OTR, over-the-road transportation, with literally 100% turnover. You've got 2,000 seats. You need 4,000 drivers, 2,000 at the beginning of the year and and 2,000 throughout the year to replace drivers who leave. Not at all uh, uh, untypical to have drivers out two to three weeks at a time Mm -hmm. uh, working over 100 hours a week and making um, four, five, six hundred dollars a week, just that. So I just wanted to throw that in, that there are still big holes. You may be driving down the road, and that driver next to you may have less than three months' experience, may have been out for the last two weeks, and uh, has not had enough sleep, is making nothing, is not able to support his family, yada, yada, yada. So, that's, a, that's a good uh, point. The, the, uh, I actually used to represent truck drivers when I was in practice, and uh, one reason why they're exempt is because theoretically the Department of Transportation gives maximum hours for safety purposes. Now, as you point out, there certainly are violations of these safety rules. I, I, when I used to represent truck drivers and grievances, the first thing that would come out would be, uh, you know, they'd talk about the company keeping uh, two sets of books as, on hours and all this. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I don't have any scientific or social scientific evidence on how broad that is, but it, it certainly does happen that, that uh, they can be worked very long hours. Uh, being a truck driver is a very tough job. It's a very tough, and it's very hard on you physically, too. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Vic. Can I make one more point? Oh, go ahead. We have a saying that truck drivers only work half days. Twelve hours. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And here is the rule: you have uh, a fourteen-hour clock, so you have to have ten hour, and then you have a ten and eleven-hour rule. You have to have ten hours off before your fourteen-hour clock starts, and within your fourteen-hour clock, you have eleven hours that you can drive. And believe me, on the OTR companies. They're going to try to get every mm-hmm. last bit of that 11 hours driving. And much of your so-called off-duty time is going to be doing paperwork, mm-hmm. waiting to load. It's really on time, fueling, yada, yada, yada. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. It is a big hole in the uh, 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 fair wage standards, and it affects all of us because every year you have new people going on the road, and uh, there's a good reason for that 100% turnover. All right. Thank they, you for... They'd make, more, they'd make more money at McDonald's. All right. Thank you for the call, Victor. 812 if you want to call in with your questions. You raises an interesting point, though, about are there going to be certain workers who are just going to be left out here that maybe aren't, aren't thought about? Well, the, certainly anybody who's exempted from the Fair Labor Standards Act is going to be left out. Uh, and he, he, he brings up a large exemption. We've talked about uh, teachers being exempted from this. And I think the theory on teachers is that even though they work well over 40 hours a week during the school year, they, they get comp time, so to speak, by not working and not being paid during the summer, which seems kind of poor comp time. But uh, um, I think politically... Some employees have been exempted from the Fair Labor Standards Act because they didn't have the politics to make sure they were included at the beginning, and that politics hasn't changed. And that's where I would put uh, teachers. Teachers were not organized when the Fair Labor Standards Act was originally passed, and as a result, they were exempted. And, 
even though they've been organized in the interim, they're now being disorganized, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't know whether they'd have the politics to be included now or not. How do these rules apply to higher ed? Well, uh, the university is is covered, and uh, although see anybody who teaches at the university is exempt, uh, and the major way, and also anybody who's a student working towards a degree is exempt, uh, even if they're doing work for us, even if they are an employee in some way. Uh, the major area that I hear the university talking about is postdocs, people who have already gotten a degree someplace else, who are brought here to work in labs and do some of their own research and do research for other people. And the university uh, is talking about increasing their salary so that they don't have to keep track of their hours. Researchers are, yeah. I mean, they work all kinds of hours, and and uh, you could you could keep track of the hours. I mean, that'd be one choice for the university, but they've decided not to go that way. Is that public and private universities? Or? Well, I, I only know about IU. Other universities uh -huh. could solve it differently. Other universities could just put them on a clock if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and and people are going to make some of those decisions, right? I mean, one, one of the real thorny issues that I've seen coming up is when you have, say, six workers all currently exempt, all doing the exact same job, right? So a larger company. Well, half of them either make enough or you're going to push. The other half don't. And I'm seeing that being solved in two directions. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of saying, okay, we want to maintain internal equity. We don't want to treat these workers differently. And so I've seen them go make them all hourly. I've also seen them go and make the change to say, okay, these are going to be salaried, non-exempt. So these solutions are going to vary greatly by resources available, knowledge. Um, how well can you craft a solution? What your company culture is like? What is the labor force demanding? You have to recruit people in the future. How are they going to look at this? So this, from a human resources standpoint, this is extraordinarily complex. The, 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 the actual complying with the law will figure out, but it's not simple. I, th I think the theory here is very good, the, the legal theory, and this is consistent with the law and with what Congress <coughs> intended. I think Chris points out that your theory can be great, and you can still have lots of practical problems with how you're going to make it work. Chris, you mentioned technology earlier, and that to me seems like that's going to be a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Is How do you do that if somebody's working from home or if they log in for a half hour to check in? How does all of that we, figure we, in? We've, we've talked a lot about that in HR, about people working from home and this kind of flexibility thing. So. The, the Department of Labor has, has taken the position for quite some time, and they've prevailed on this in court multiple times, that if you're an employee and you have your smartphone with you at home and you get a work email and you open that, you read that, you actually work on that, they consider that compensable time, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so you've, we've had a lot of discussions in HR. Does that mean you embargo emails after a certain period of time? Do you just chop email off of people's smartphones altogether because you can't control what they read? Um, how far do you want to torque your business relative to your legal exposure to do that? Um, and especially with Generation Y, the, the whole concept of value delivery being tied to a clock or being tied to a physical spot doesn't even compute with them. Mm -hmm. And when I was to give an example, I was ta telling my students in class this last semester and walking them through this. And so one student held up his hand and said, I don't understand how you can affix a, f 
a, a you, how you can have a fixed cost assigned to an hour of labor without knowing what that hour of labor will yield and output or command in the marketplace. And I said, yeah, I don't either. By the way, I mean, this is, you know starts back in 1932, and that court kind of thing was far more predictable relative to what a worker could produce and what those results would yield. But uh, th- they're just gobsmacked by it. The students are because they just don't see they, – they want flexibility. As a matter of fact, they're almost willing to pay for it, quite frankly, to get that flexibility. And that's going to be the thing to manage. How much of it do you give and how do you manage your legal exposure while doing it? I'm curious what advice are you giving to folks who come to you and say, hey, I, I pay for cell phones for my employees with the expectation that – what, the, the overwhelming thing I'm telling my clients is, look, um, you, you never let the regulatory tail wag the business dog any more than necessary, right? So you tell me what's absolutely essential for the business. So when I say essential, I mean essential. Do workers really need to work all these hours? Or were we just allowing them to because we could and we didn't track it? And if they do, what are they doing and what does that really mean? And should these people even be working 40 hours to begin with? By the way, do you really need employees? Could you use seasonal help? Could you get your arms around how the business flows? Could you use independent contractors? How much control do you have to have to operate your business? And how much are you willing to pay to have that control? So I'm calling all these fundamental foundational precepts into question because I think this calls it. I think the question's been asked because I'm trying to find solutions for them that are durable, that are sustainable, because we now know the costs are going to go up inexorably. The only question is how much are you going to pay when that gets there? I think that's a really good point that, that, that businesses, at least for our employees, they're used to working around and trying to minimize overtime. And what this says is it gives them a problem and it is a problem and it's going to cause some, some readjustments and things like that. But they're going to start thinking about how much they work these people over time, uh, unless they're paying them at least $47,000, $476 a year. And I think that that's probably a good thing, uh, that they ought to take that as a cost rather than just these are free hours. We're already paying this person a salary and we can work them as many hours as we want. I'll tell you one other thing that I think is going to be jarring for folks. Um, two times in my career, I've had to take workers who were classified as exempt and make them non-exempt because they were improperly classified, right? It was just, it, there was no way, and it was a duties test issue. They were improperly classified, and so I had to go through this. In each case, the workers blew up and said, look, there's no way you should leave us exempt because the amount of overtime we work will cripple the company, cripple, right? In both cases, to help employees build the habit of punching in and out and in and out and all the, the, the whole kabuki theater that you do with the clock when you're hourly, you have to build that habit. You have to build that discipline when you've never done it before. And I also wanted to get an idea of how much the overtime would cost because we didn't know. In both cases, in both cases, the workers on average were working less than 40 hours. They perceived they were working a lot, right? Mm. Um, When you look at the average work week in the United States, it stands right now only at 34.4 hours. That's across the United States. So, and we have not been anywhere near 40 for a decade plus. I believe from a human resources perspective, one of the main reasons why people think they work more is because there's no longer a delineation from it, especially if you're an exempt worker. When my father went home, 
his boss would no more have called him than the man in the moon. And I don't even know if he could have gotten through because if the neighbor was on the party line, he couldn't even gotten the phone call for That's him. a good point. That's and good and point. there was no email. There was no internet. He had no clue what was going on. We were He was literally on an island for 12 hours until he went back to work. And was ever there, he had to tackle. We all have our electronic tethers now. Right. And those email that this device goes off and it's a Pavlovian response to look at it. And I was talking to a younger worker about this one time who was uh, whose job was major accounts. They had three accounts they were fully accountable for and, and to keep them happy and engaged. So kind of like a troubleshooter, if you will. And I was talking to the employee about this one time and, and it was the whole issue around do we really embargo the emails? Because I was a little bit concerned about the whole exemption status thing, so I was kind of probing that. I'm talking to the employees to see where their level of acceptance is. And she said, so if you take the emails away, what you're saying is you want me to look at and think about a problem 12 hours later than I couldn't when the customer expected to be solved the minute they hit send. Because we live in the internet world, Chris. That's what she told me. We live in the internet world. And so they believe I'm already working on this. And if my compensation rests on keeping them happy, because all I can do is read that email. I know exactly what two people need to get that email because I want to let them know we're meeting first thing in the morning. She says, no big deal. I'm going to hop on. I'm going to say, here's the issue. I need you and I need you in my office at 9 o'clock. Boom, that's gone. She said, you really want to take that away from me? What's that mean to the customer satisfaction all the other things? You know what I did? said, you leave that working just like it is because that's the core of the business. We'll figure the rest mm-hmm. of it out, but that's the mm-hmm. core of the business. So when you log on to check that email, the expectation is then that you're going to have to punch time. The DOL considers you reading that email work. So Just to be clear, mm-hmm. <laughs> wage and hour division considers that work. So realistically, like if, if you do that, then you should clock in and out at that time. It's theoretically, yeah. certainly if you're hourly, sure. you should. This is why the implications for working at home and this flexibility are called into mind because when if you ever as a as an an employer if you ever get into an an argument with an employee over hours worked and you the employer have no record it is the employee that is right from the department of labor standpoint right and they'll produce a log they've been keeping for weeks to prove their point and if you the employer cannot provide any countervail or anything like that then you're going to lose we're just under 10 minutes. I thought I'd give the phone number one more time in case you want to uh, join us, 812-855-0811. Uh, maybe we can go back just really briefly, too, and just talk about those who are listening right now, uh, those who are workers, what, and they're listening to all this and maybe a little confused. What, what do they need to do? Do they need to do anything? Do they need to talk to their employer or what? The ball's really in the employer's court here right now, uh, I, I think, to communicate to employees. They, they can certainly ask questions. But as I said, there's a, there's a big dividing line. There are a lot of employers who are ready, right? IU's been aware this is coming. IU's prepared. Eli Lilly, you know, all these other large corporations. And if you had professional HR, you're, you're, you've got this covered. And you probably communicated something to employees the day the thing dropped in the news, right? Everybody else playing catch up mm-hmm. probably doesn't have anything to tell employees because they don't even know what to tell them yet because they're still figuring it out. Mm. So I, I think it really depends by employer side. If you don't have an HR department, odds are real good your boss is still thinking this through. And, and I think Chris is right that most employers are in good faith going to try to comply with this. So most employers are going to have a conversation with the employee uh, and say, you know, we have to change the way you're compensated or we have to keep track of the hours you're working or, or by the way, you just got a raise or you got more help, mm-hmm. more help on the job. Uh, and I think that most employers will come forward with that. I suppose if, if they, uh, there might be some who try to s- slip by on that, it would be very risky to, to try to ignore this rule. 
uh, uh, with potentially very high uh, damages later. Uh, if uh, uh, so that uh, if you're a if you're a salaried employee who makes less than forty seven thousand four hundred seventy six and you think you're exempted because you're classified as either executive, administrative, or professional, and your employer does nothing, then um, you might want to talk with the Department of Labor. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'd advise talking to the employer first because they still might not know what they're supposed to do. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We have a couple calls we want to make sure we, we get to here. Jim from Bloomington has a question. Jim, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, love your program, by the way. Um, I just had, you know, a couple of comments and, and, you know, wanted to see what you guys had to say about it. Uh, basically, I'm an automotive mechanic and have been for uh, basically five to seven years the way we get paid is flat rate. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you get paid for the work that you do. You clock in and you clock off certain jobs. Um, depending on what it is, you might get paid two hours for a job. That job might take you a half hour to actually perform or even longer if you're unlucky. Um, but a lot of that, you know, compensation like that is uh, is directly related to what you guys are talking about Um I was listening to you talking about, you know, working from home and the email and stuff like that. Um, a lot of times I get aggravated because I get asked to do things that I'm not clocked in for or clocked on for, like, hey, can you check this real quick? Can you answer a question from a customer real quick? And it gets aggravating when you're, you know, five minutes a day, five days a week, 25 minutes a week, you know, half an hour a week, that's 25 hours a year that I might not get paid for. Um, you know, so it is aggravating to to have that kind of, uh, like you said, this electronic tether or this this different thing that uh, people are asking you to do work that you're not getting paid for, and it gets aggravating. And then mm-hmm. then they wonder why you know you have a bad attitude or you're not as apt to help out your employer when you're not being looked after. So I think you know a lot of people are aggravated with employers these days who don't really take care of their customer not their customers, their, their employees, um, where it's more of, uh, you know, if, I, if you don't do the job, then I've got five guys out the door lined up who will. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's aggravating and it's disappointing that, that that's kind of the stigma or the, the culture that we're in nowadays. I do think there there has been a change like that where where uh, you know I remember the golden days when I was young and the labor market was tight and employers felt an obligation uh-huh. to treat their employees well and I and I think most employers are good natured and don't want to abuse their employees and so I'm not trying to cast any aspersions but it is true that the labor market is much more slack now and employers uh, some employers have gotten a little sloppy about how they treat their employees and. Yeah. And that would include not keeping track of hours that they work and not paying them. And certainly wage theft, the Department of Labor is working on wage theft is rampant, uh, that there are employers who are not actually following the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and uh, they're going to be sued in class action suits, uh, basically. So that, uh, hopefully there'll be, there'll be some redress for that. But, but, but um, I do think that the, the labor market, it, employers don't, uh, some employers have just gotten lazy about it, I would say. I think that's true. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I agree totally. Okay, Jim, thank you for the, for the comment. Um, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Jim. Next, we are going to go to Ellen. Ellen is in Jackson County. Ellen, go ahead. Uh, yes, I was just wondering, I heard you mention earlier that a 501c3 charitable groups would be exempt from this um, new law. Uh, this is a very specific question. Would it, 
would an animal shelter be considered in that category or would that be you know not in that category I'd have to know how it's how it's set up, but right. but it it sounds like a, a charitable nonprofit that does not compete with with for profit, and so I suspect it would be exempt. But I, I'd have to know how you're set up. Uh, um, well, yeah, and we basically have a contract with with the city of Seymour, mm-hmm. uh, but we are the only uh, agency that that has a contract with the city. Uh, but we pay our employees out of the funds we get through that contract, but additional funds that we do for fundraising and things like that. And we, you know, take in stray animals and adopt them out, uh, which is just our basic function. So, uh, but we only have one full-time employee who does not make that amount of money right now. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm mm-hmm. wondering if, if we're going to have to be, uh, you know, raising her salary. Well, I, I suspect that you're exempt, but but you can also, as we've mentioned, I mean, you can com- you could comply by just calculating out what uh, you know, finding figuring out what she works on average or what what she generally works, and calculating out whether that would be greater than seven uh, twenty-five an hour plus time and a half for overtime, because mm-hmm. uh, you can okay. also you can also meet it by specifying this is a salary for working fifty hours 50 a hour, week or right. sixty hours a right. week or whatever, and so you, that would be another way to go. Okay. Okay. Th- All right. Well, that that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. We only have uh-huh. two minutes left in the program here. Just really quick, I want to get to Senator Dan Coates sent out a press release this week saying that this new rule would potentially raise college tuition for millions of, of students, potentially, because it will add to additional operating costs. She, I want to get your reaction to that. Well, I, I kind of get where he's coming from in the sense that um, if you look at where colleges have really beefed up their cost over the last 10 years, it's not been on the instruction side. It's been in the administrative portion of universities. That's been the giant growth in universities over the last 10 years. And all of those roles would be subject to to the act. So that may be what he's referring to in that regard. I, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like an overreaction to me. But then it would just be passed on to the students in the terms of tuition. Yeah, I mean, at least I know that we're making some changes with respect to the to the um, postdoctoral uh, uh, employees, but that's not a large number. Uh, they're also cutting some of those slots, uh, so that I don't know that a lot of that money is going to be passed on to students. I don't, I don't know that any of it's going to be, but I, I'm not privy to exactly how the university's making yeah, this response. Uh, yeah, John Whalen had a piece in the paper, I think it was on Sunday, where he kind of laid out the volume of, of workers who they expect to be affected here at, at, at Indy University. Again, that's on the administrative side, sure. not, mm-hmm. the, not, not the instructional mm-hmm. side. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today's program, but I want to thank our guests for joining us, Chris Schrader, Ken Dalschmidt. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. For producer Sophia Salby and Drew Dodlin, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Sarah Whitmire. This is Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.
and Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.